Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 232 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by Alfonso Calero, a travel and landscape photographer born in the Philippines, living in Australia. Alfonso and I met on the audio app Clubhouse, and he has been a regular contributor to our weekly Clubhouse after parties for the podcast. He runs his own photography tour business in Australia and is fluent in several languages. His cultural fluidity is something that he is able to leverage in order to maximize the experience of his workshop clients, which is something that we speak a lot about on the show today. We also cover the heavy topic of creativity quite extensively. Over on Patreon this week, we had a great conversation about leveraging visual communication as a tool for therapy. So be sure to tune in this week over there. If you're not yet supporting the show on Patreon, I'd appreciate it if you did. Thank you to those of you who already do, including our latest supporter, Marsha Kirschbaum. I am incredibly grateful for your support. Okay, let's get to the show. All right. Alfonso Calero, it's so cool to have you on the podcast from Down Under. G'day. Nice to see you. Welcome from Lockdown Sydney. How are you? Oh, yeah. I'm so sorry about that. Yeah, we we don't really go into lockdown here in the United States the way you guys do, so I, I always feel bad for everyone else across the planet. Yeah, nevertheless, I'm really grateful. I'm happy. I'm healthy. I can still go out on long walks, and uh, and the government's been very supported financially for the business, so I have no complaints. Perfect. Well, that's the. Way, I feel like that's kind of the way it should be. If if we want to have any impact on this on this thing, we need to do something something similar to that. So it makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, cool. So Alfonso, it's been really great to get to know you a little bit over on Clubhouse. Um, we do do um, Clubhouse after parties that are hosted by listeners, which it's been fun to see people engage with guests and and myself and other listeners over there. And I know that um, you've been doing a fair bit of that as well. So that's been cool to see. But other than that, I'm I'm very unfamiliar with you and your photography, which I think is actually going to be a lot of fun for us. So um, let's just start off with you telling uh, us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you got into photography. Yes. Uh, when I was 19, I got my first Canon T50, went traveling around Europe for nine, uh, a year um, so it's been a hobby. I'm 55 now. So it was a hobby from like 19 years of age till around 30. And I'm uh, considered a late starter as a professional photographer because I started when I was 30, when we had our first child, got two kids. My wife's Japanese. I lived in Tokyo a long time. That's where I kidnapped her and brought her back here to Australia. Uh, <laughs> she was eventually, uh, uh, she's obviously we've been here ever since off and on. Uh, I was born and raised in Manila in the Philippines, oh, wow. uh, but I'm Spanish blood. You know, they invaded the Philippines, right? Um, just like the English invaded uh, Australia, right? By the way, um, it, for the viewers who can't see my t-shirt, I'm wearing <laughs> an Aboriginal uh, word for the area, which I need to acknowledge the, uh, the first nation people um, who are the custodians of this land. Uh, and uh, this is the place I live now, Sydney, Australia. And uh, I specialize in people and places uh, with photography. And my journey kind of started if, when I was 30. So, and uh, I was a professional photographer and still am. And any more questions you want to ask in regards to that? Oh, there's so many questions I have for you, Alfonso. 
you said you got started when you were 30 and you're now in your 50s. And I'd be really curious to hear you talk a little bit about what was the impetus for you to transition into photography as a full-time career? Yeah, good question. Um, uh, I, I believe everything you've done in your past should be used for your future as part of your job. So uh, like we were talking earlier before we started about your job, and, and I'll kind of link that back to how your job can be used for your own future. So um, I guess what started was uh, I studied hotel and restaurant management. So I was really into, you know, communicating with people. I love uh, meeting people. And, and then I went to Japan. I taught English there. And then I came back here and I was a Japanese speaking tour guide. Uh, and a Spanish-speaking tour guide and an English-speaking tour guide. And then uh, while I was doing that, I studied, I wanted to get into photography. So eventually, after about 10 years of shooting professionally, I started this photo tour company, which is a combination of all my past jobs, you know, travel, teaching, hospitality, uh, and and uh, and photography. So yeah. that's, I guess, it. I didn't plan it. It sort of organically happened. And yeah, I hope that answers your question. No, it does. That's that, that's really cool. So, so do you see yourself more as a tour guide or more as a photographer? Both, but more as a photographer um, because the customers are photographers mm-hmm. first, and then they want to experience, you know, not just photography. They also want to experience a little bit about other th- aspects to travel. So it depends on the location, the season whether it's local or global, meaning Australia or overseas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm guessing that the fact that you're trilingual uh, gives you a pretty big advantage in terms of your ability to connect with uh, customers from many, many more places all over the world. Oh, yeah. It opens up doors like you wouldn't imagine. Um, it definitely breaks the ice quicker. Uh, Yeah. And when you're doing research before you go to, it's super valuable to to read and write in that language. Um, So, yeah, definitely grateful to my my parents for having taught me Spanish and uh, and then in the Philippines for Tagalog as well. Wow. So four languages. Yeah. Well, look, you know, I'm I'm I wouldn't say I'm a bilingual or trilingual or quadlingual. But I'm, I guess I could, there's a difference between being uh, fluent or almost fluent <laughs> and then right. being, yeah, being bilingual is like you're, you're as good as in English. English is my mother tongue, obviously. But um, yeah, and I'm, you know, you, English or any language is a never ending learning curve. Right. That's awesome. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the, the places that you like to uh, bring your clients. Um, it's, it seems to me like a lot of... The places that you're visiting are rooted in um, cities, but then also the beautiful areas surrounding cities and these various cultures that you that you familiarize yourself with. Um, which I think, uh, when you are uh, when you find yourself in those types of environments, uh, especially if it becomes very familiar to you, it can sometimes start to to feel somewhat ordinary um, because you visit those places so often and. You just become used to seeing things over and over again. So I'm curious uh, for you as someone who visits a lot of different places and teaches a lot of different people in those places, what is your process uh, for helping people see beauty in the ordinary? Um, I, 
I have a different uh, outlook on that. I don't even, I don't, the more I learn about something, the more I realize I don't know a lot about it. <laughs> yeah. So when I keep going back to a place, I, the, the, I guess the process for me is I try to challenge myself to look at it differently every time. So it, it might be as simple as walking around the block in my neighborhood, which I'm doing a lot of now during lockdown when I exercise. And I'm, and I, I challenge myself to, see something I've never seen before. Because, you know, um, people might say that familiarity, what's the word, the, the saying familiarity breeds contempt or, you know. Well, I, think I, I think that's right. Yeah. Well, I think familiarity breeds um, uh, more knowledge about a place or more experience. So that, you know, let's say you look at landscape photography, the more you go to a place and you see it year in, year out in different seasons, you, you're like, you're like a walking textbook about that, you know, so it really helps. Yeah. Another, another factor that I think helps me uh, try to see the world differently is to see it through the eyes of my own customers or my friends mm -hmm. or my family so that I go, oh, wow, I never thought of that perspective. And and I help them enhance that through a lot of questioning uh, what what there is triggering their, you know, their response to the the, the place and time. So... And then through that, we explore it together. And then I go, holy cow, I didn't, I never thought of that, you know? Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a win-win, you know, for both sides. Right. Yeah, no, that resonates a lot with me. I, I feel like, uh, you know, I do a lot of photography in Colorado in fall. And so I've become very familiar with very specific locations in fall. And I understand, you know, oh, in six days, those trees will probably change and, and, oh, when that happens, this is going to be something else I can photograph. And, oh, I can pursue some ground-based, ground, looking down on the ground type stuff because the leaves have fallen down and there's interesting patterns. And so you just become more and more intimately familiar with the location and the, the situation you find yourself in. And so, but I think the that's not necessarily intuitive for everyone, right? I mean, I think I think it begins with having a strong connection to curiosity and also to having a learner's mind if, if, if I could be so bold as to say mm. well I think you hit the nail on the head um, for me curiosity is what uh, leads to um, the rabbit hole right a rabbit hole of, of knowledge you know and so if you're curious all the time it's it's a great stimulant to the brain right and it it will definitely wake you up and then it will make you question. You, you might not find the answers exactly the way you want them, but you're definitely having fun doing it along the way. And that that's the whole point. And that's why I do photography, because I'm always curious, you know? Uh, yeah. Curious. And if I can be curious with my customers and I can help them answer those questions uh, or get closer to that, yeah, it's so much fun. So I'm curious, uh, because I know this is something that a lot of photographers struggle with, especially people who you know, maybe they have full-time jobs and they can only maybe get out a couple times a year or maybe a couple times a month at the most. And, you know, they're often uh, saddled with these challenges of time constraints and needing to visit places at peak conditions. And, you know, they have these preconceptions about what they're going to photograph. And I think a lot of people struggle to kind of disconnect those expectations from, from what they're going to find. So I'm really curious uh, about what your approach is in working with clients to help kind of decouple those expectations and, and help them become more curious uh, 
um, about the ordinary things that they encounter on a day-to-day basis within their own environments. Okay, so uh, so is this question more about the customer or more about um, how I handle the customer or is it more about just me nothing to do with the customer? I think it's more about, I'd be really curious to hear about how you help those customers um, achieve that level of curiosity and ability to see beauty in the ordinary. Yeah, so um, because we're going away for three, five, seven, or 10 days, or 14 days at a time, depending on the locations around the world, um, I never take anyone I don't know. So I, I'll always meet them. If I can meet them face-to-face, if not, you know, do a video chat and, and might spend an hour or two just chatting with them. Because, you know, it's, it's a big call. They're spending a lot of money, and I want to make sure that they're getting exactly what they expect. Um, now, uh, I also tried to ask them questions beforehand, like, well, what would be a highlight for you, you know, as to what you want to get out of your time out with me? What is it about my itinerary that attracted you to the interest of joining? You know, so like if you if were to go to my website, it's not it's not it's not like a doesn't have to just be a book now button or more info. It's more like click here for a Zoom chat. Mm. Let's book a, a Zoom chat, you know, or whatever platform they want to chat with. And then um, I need to know them. They need to know me, and they need to feel comfortable me with me, and that's important. And then I try and match them with the other people because I only take like up to six people when I do, do these trips. So, um, and that's how I've been able to maintain the business as well because I have a lot of repeat cl- customers that come back because they already know me and feel comfortable with me and I feel comfortable with them. And I know that that person will match well with that person in on this trip. So when I'm pushing it again and sending the message out, hey, you want to go on this trip to Uluru, uh, to Alice Springs? Uh, I, I know that person might have a, an interest in Aboriginal culture, for example. Uh, or I know that person that I've taken to Japan might want to go to another part of Japan, you know? So, uh, yeah, you got every person's different. So bottom line is you got to understand yourself and your customer, like, really intimately before you go. So what is it about that process of getting to know your customer that helps you help them not to sound like Jerry Maguire movie, but how do you help them see the beauty in the ordinary through that process? That happens when they're out in the field, but when we're on the tour, it doesn't happen obviously beforehand, but if you prepare them. So another thing that happens if they're definitely signed up to go, I might set up like a WhatsApp group for that group. And we try to also meet, whether it's face-to-face if possible or online before we go. So people need to feel comfortable with each other and themselves and me. And that's Mm -hmm. that without, if you don't do that, you're not going to find the beauty in the ordinary to start with. Right. You got to be. Because they're going to be super focused on the normal human, like getting to know people and the awkwardness of being in a new group and all that stuff. So many, yeah, there's so many barriers that can happen that doesn't help them find the beauty in the ordinary. And so, and I mean, it, the, the thing is, they, it's a lot easier for them to find uh, good shots anyway, because they're, they're not finding the ordinary anyway where they go to start with, right? But if they do think that way, then um, I'm just, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. So I'm super encouraging all the time. Uh, and 
yes, I am. I will give them a little critique, uh, but I'm also careful with some people because some people are more sensitive than others. Uh, and, you know, I forgot we're going to be going together for a long time to different places. I got I to gotta make sure I tread carefully and, uh, and at their pace because every person is different. And I got to know them in order to find out what they are, what triggers them to what they like. And then I can help them find that pathway to find the beauty in the ordinary. Well, I think we could stay on this particular topic and address one of the other topics that I wanted to bring up with you. Um, a couple of nights ago, we were having a conversation on Clubhouse um, in one of the after parties for the podcast. And we were talking about workshops and workshop ethics. And, you know, we we'd brought up some examples that I was aware of where um, students urge their workshop uh, teachers to take them to locations or to, to, you know, help them get photographs that might not be ethically sustainable. And, um, you know, maybe there's trespassing involved or things of that nature. And I know you had a lot to say on that particular topic, so I'm really looking forward uh, to having this particular chat. But, you know, I was curious what your particular process is for managing those customer expectations um, at the beginning of workshops and why is that so important to your process? Um, I'm, yeah, I think somewhere in the contract, you know, we talk a lot about uh, the weather and how we can control the weather. Um, we also, because sometimes you bring, you might, let's say we just talk about landscape photographers, right? And you, you and I have gone out in the field and had that experience in different types of landscapes. So we understand different types of weather, different seasons. But surprisingly, some customers, they, they, haven't, they haven't done a lot of that. They haven't had that much experience doing that. It looks exciting and they want to try it. So it's like they're, you're throwing them in the deep end as well. <laughs> it's like, holy cow, I have to, what? I got to walk over rocks, you know? Well, shit, I might get wet. You know, it's like, so that part is where you manage the expectations and you, ex you have to explain some things as basic as that beforehand and just like you know a, you know and also a lot of times you have to ask them you know really what how fit are you right you know, i was gonna say like have you ever been hiking before yeah that's <laughs> right you know so on my on my website i have a thing there i might i might change it a bit but it's like you know ten thousand steps a day minimum minimum right you know i i put i think i have 10 to twenty thousand. but um it depends on the itinerary because you, you know what ten thousand steps is like you know seven and a half k's or something like that or a hundred minutes or something like that. So, um, and it's, it's doable. It's not hard at all, but, but you'll be surprised how people don't really understand how what's involved, you know, see, that's the thing you got to talk about beforehand. Yeah. And I think that spending that quality time up front, getting to know your customer and what their wants and needs and desires are, and really um, being upfront and honest with people about uh, if they're not necessarily going to be a good fit for what is it, what it is you have planned. And I'm curious how, what do those conversations usually look like? Yeah. Like, like, like that was an example of that, you know? So, and it's funny, the conversations you have before they sign up because they, they, they reveal things, especially, and I got to do video chat at least if not face to face, because I need to see the body language, you know, and I need to, and also they might bring a partner and their partner is also a photographer. And then they'll say something about their medical history and like, oh, okay, hang on a second, you know, and I'm not going to say what those things are. That's all confidential. 
what they are exactly, but uh, and it's confidential between us. But in the end, we have a amicable um, uh, solution, whether they come or not. You know, right? You know, and there's no there's there's no problem. It's like cool, you know. They and they always say, "Appreciate, I really appreciate it. You spent the time to to walk us through." So that we know exactly what's expected of us as much as what's expected of you. Um, yeah, I'm reminded of a uh, situation a couple of years ago with a pretty famous landscape photographer who took some clients on this really big backpacking trip. I don't even remember where it was, somewhere in Europe, but um, it seemed as if maybe that screening didn't occur. And there was like a bunch of people dropped out like halfway through and or complaining online about the workshop. And so I think, if anything, you're doing yourself a pretty big disservice if you don't kind of do some of that legwork up front to yeah. ensure that people are a good fit for what it is you have in mind. Hell yeah. You got to <laughs> do your homework. That's risk management, really. I mean, oh, that's definitely. That's, that's, uh, that, um, my, my wife's from Tokyo and, you know, she, they grow up learning about risk management through earthquakes and tsunamis, you know? Oh, yeah, sure. And she helps me with the admin side of things, but she also comes with me on my Japan trips. Um, and it, um, it's kind of a great balance in our partnership with that because she's a lot more in tune with that side of things. You know, I'm from the Philippines, but a little bit more laid back and, you know, it's right. like, you know, you know, I love the, I love the, the, the order in the chaos kind of thing, you know, but, um, yeah, you just gotta, like I said, it's all down to that individual customer. And it's all about customer service and understanding them um, and uh, really delivering beyond what they expected, that, you know, so that they keep coming back. Yeah, no, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's shift over and talk a little bit about um, bringing your past into your photography. I know you mentioned earlier that. Uh, your your history, your work history has played a big role in kind of helping you form your photography business. But I would be curious to learn more about your thoughts on how each and every one of us can use uh, photography as a uh, subconscious visual collection of our past. And what does that look like? Yeah. Okay. That, that sounds like a really deep uh, thing to say, right? People are like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Subconscious. What did I say? Subconscious. Visual collection. Visual collection. So um, I believe that when you, before you, you take a photograph, you're, you have influences. Now those influences are, are visual as well as there could, they could be political, religious, uh, might be cultural, traditional, it might just be a character thing, uh, whatever it is. It might be influences some, from something you read about last week. It might be influences from your childhood and who you are and who you become. So, um, and you also create bias. That's just human nature, you know. We we create bias, so we go, ah, oh, no, no, I'm not going to take a photo of that. That doesn't interest me. But yeah, I'm gonna. I, but I I have this idea in mind and this is what I want to do so and you look at other photographers or you look at other things and then you slowly collect ideas subconsciously about that without realizing it but you are you are you're influencing your your visual communication you know mm -hmm. composition is to do with visual literacy you know elements are vocabulary and and principles are grammar and you mix them together and you make art I mean that's just part of it right so and it's not just photography that's influencing you visually. 
So, yeah, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear more how you've seen that manifest with either yourself or with clients that you've worked with in terms of kind of examining that more deeply and making that linkage between our past and the visual um, communication that we're trying to achieve. So when you get to know yourself or your friends or customers, for example, you have to understand what their interests are. So that's where the influences come from. Um, so I often, uh, when I do a presentation at a camera club, I might just start by showing them um, the 50 books I've read this year. And I'll do a, like a, a lay flat shot of all those books on the ground. And then they look at those books and go, holy cow, there's so many topics here. So, um, you know, there might be a book on anthropology on, uh, on, or another one on languages or it's nothing to do with photography, right? Mm -hmm. but, uh, or, uh, yeah, so you, you gather influences from interests and then you slowly put it together. Yeah, it's going to, you know, there's a minor white quote that says that all photographs are self-portraits. Yeah. Which I think, which I think is yeah. a very interesting way of kind of encapsulating some of what you're talking about. Yeah. Cause what, what that does is it, it, you're not just recording an image of what you see. It's more about of self-expression about the time and place. So you're, you're exploring that more, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. Do you ever get the sense that, and this is the cynic in me, so I apologize in advance, but do you ever get the sense that as photographers, we're sometimes trying to force that a little bit in terms of either the way that we describe our work or perhaps in the way that we're composing or uh, including elements in photographs? Like, do you think that's even a thing to, to force the visual communication? Uh, can you give me an example of what you mean? Um, it's just an interesting theme that I've seen people talk about, like oftentimes when people are sitting down to caption their work for like in Lightroom or when they put it on their website or share it on social media, sometimes the descriptions um, don't always seem like they're authentic. I don't know. I'm just, I mean, I'm even thinking, speaking for myself, sometimes I'm creating descriptions of images and maybe embellishing a little bit in terms of kind of what is what it is I experienced um, in terms of like what I'm visually communicating or what I think the image visually communicates. I just feel like I'm wondering if you agree uh, that sometimes we do that as photographers, we maybe try to force that or embellish that a little bit more than we need to, or, or, or maybe I'm just talking out the side of my head here. I don't even know. <laughs> um, there is a museum in uh, outside a, in Hobart in Tasmania, it's a modern art and modern and old, I said Mona, it's called Mona Museum. And they have the, they have a caption underneath each artwork and they call it an art wank. <laughs> um, and I, you know, those things that you have, it's basically, if you know, when you write good caption uh, or you write a good artist statement to support your work, that is an art in itself. So I'm forgiving of people that don't do that properly. Um, and sometimes I don't even write those. I get someone who knows how to write those um, because, and sometimes if you are going to do a project, which is really, really healthy, and I recommend everyone, I hope you're doing it already. I have like 10 projects that have been going on forever. Some last long, some are short. You got to, if you can, write an artist statement before you start the project. 
And if you can do that, it might be two or three sentences. It gives you more direction mm-hmm. for your narrative your, and your message, which will hopefully come true and authentic in, in, in the actual images to match what's written. But I think sometimes people put together images and then they just want to write stuff with it and it may not match properly. I'm fr- and like I said, I'm forgiving because that in itself is a hard thing to do properly. Oh, yeah. I was certainly not saying I do it very well. I just um, so I just wonder sometimes if we're forcing something that may not even be there, you know, in terms of yeah, we looking, might looking at a photograph and saying, oh, this this represents this metaphor or I'm trying to communicate sorrow and grief. But you look at the image and you're like, it just looks pretty to me or whatever, you know. So I think, I'm just curious if you think sometimes we push that beyond perhaps what might be considered, I guess authentic is the right word, but I don't know. Um, if I if I have something that I really like and I want to put something out, I, I often send it to my daughter or my son or my wife. My wife uses a Japanese word called muriari, which is like you're forcing it. That sounds like you're forcing it um, and it doesn't seem authentic. And, and that word really, you know, kind of wakes you up and go, okay, hang on, I better think about this and not just try to, pull a rabbit out of a hat and and like trying to match this with this and it doesn't work. I agree. We do that. It's just part of the part of the mistakes that we learn from. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. I just I know I know I struggle with that sometimes, you know, often when I'm in the field, uh a lot of times when I'm in the field, I don't really necessarily know what I'm trying to communicate and sometimes it doesn't hit you until you get back that it is communicating something. Yeah. Um and I don't know that we're always consciously aware of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's sometimes I think it's very basic, you know, like as little I, uh, I know of you, but I've listened to many of your podcasts for a long time. I would say you're definitely an environmentalist. You love ecology. You love the environment. You love climate. You love, you know, you're a humanitarian, you know. So um, and if you can put that through in your work and make it sh- shine, to whatever particular message you're, you're trying to say, then yeah, more power to you. Uh, that, can I just sort of go off track here in regards to um, what I think is a, uh, a good example of good, of a, you can look it up um, if you can remember the damn thing now. But anyway, there's a photo of two wild boars fornicating on top of uh, a rubbish dump, I think in Dhaka, Bangladesh. And there's a, it won, I think, in the uh, the Siena Photo Awards thing. It won an award, and 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 there's there's these uh, there's a factory in the background in the landscape, right? And they're huge. So that that shows obviously that you know nature's encroaching in in an urban landscape, which is also a rubbish tip. And then how the environment's so bad because it's one of the most polluted places in the world. Um, and I just like that one shot. And then the, the caption that's underneath it, I'll send you a link if I can find it. But that to me is a really good example of, you know, this person obviously thought about this and, uh, and it, it did a really strong, good job at sending the message. A bit shocking, but. And I just, you know, again, playing devil's advocate and being the, I guess, pragmatist that I am. Maybe they just saw that scene happening and thought, oh, my God, what an amazing, amazingly wild image to make an image photograph of. I'm going to capture it. And then afterwards, they looked at it more closely and were like, wow, this actually communicates a lot more than what I thought it did. Yeah. I don't I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes it can happen. 
I did a series of portraits of what I called environmental refugees in uh, Manila mm-hmm. along the, the boulevard there where I was walking with my customers. And every time I stopped to ask permission to take a, a single portrait of a single person uh, with my customers, I would talk to them in Tagalog and ask them, you know, uh, where are you from? Because you, you often ask where your, where your, where your province is. It's mm-hmm. like we do with the Aboriginal people here as well. What, where's your country, you know? Where's your homeland? Um, and off, and then I, and then as I went from one person to the next, I, I realized that all of them weren't from Manila and they were all there because of uh, a flood or an earthquake or a landslide that happened and they were oh, living wow. on the streets. And so that evolved into a story of a series that I, uh, you know, captioned properly because it happened as I did it. But but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Happen. That can happen too, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like it. It comes together as you're, like you're taking images. You know, there's something there, and then you start to weave together. The oh, there's actually is a story here that I can tell yeah. with these photographs, and you know, I totally appreciate that too. I just, I'm just curious if you thought, you know, maybe sometimes we were just winging it out there. I, I know sometimes I am. I, you know, oftentimes I'll I'll see something. It's capturing my attention. And oftentimes I'm not totally sure what it is about the scene that I enjoy or that it that it's communicating or that it's speaking to me about. And until later, I can examine it more further. So, yeah, I, I'm just saying, like, sometimes that can happen in the moment. Sometimes it's planned. Um, yeah, I don't, there's not like a right or wrong. Yeah. Just, yeah, I think you can find links if you're attracted to it for some reason and you like it and you look at those best of series and then you might link it up with some other shots you did at a different time and place. Yeah, you know, it, it then then it's a collection. It becomes a visual collection. And then you're like, oh, okay, why do I like this? Why is this a collection? And then you, del- you your curiosity will definitely wake up some parts of your brain that you go, hang on a second. Yeah, there's some weird connection here. And then, and then you can properly caption it if you research properly. Yeah, I like that. Well, let's uh let's talk about creativity. Okay, <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge yeah. topic. I know we can go in like a thousand directions on this particular one, um, but I'm just curious from your perspective, uh, what does it look like to be creative in photography? Um, well, a lot of what I've already talked about is kind of uh, linked to creativity, anyway. Um, there are people uh, that don't believe they're creative, um, and that's the relationship and the struggle I have with most of my customers mm-hmm. and, and and that's the value I can bring to the table to help them realize that they can be creative by helping them you know ways to to, to get there so uh, projects are, are a really big thing to make a series of photos just like we talked about um, so if let's say you did a bunch of shots of autumn, leaves on the ground and you did a series of those shots and then you started to do them more and more because you love them that will definitely and then you delve in the deeper you delve in the more creative you'll get it has it has to have an emotional impact for the viewer to be um to be i guess seen as being creative not for the viewer for the shooter for the photographer got it to be for the viewer that's fine no, I like that you made that distinction because I think oftentimes people are creating not for themselves, they're creating for other people. And 
I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I just think oftentimes I can change the outcome. Um, I, I think it's um, good to get ideas from other people, but you should always create for yourself because every person has got to find their individual voice. Um, and you, you just got to practice and practice and practice. Now, yeah, we I think I've heard you talk about in past podcasts where first you got to get over a few hurdles, like the technical side. Sure. Knowing about composition. Um, so, and then after months or years, that just goes to the back of your brain and it's just intuitive. And then you can focus on your yourself, your self-expression. Right. And, yeah, yeah. So how... This is a this is a really esoteric question, but I'm curious. How do we know when we're being creative? Like, like, is there a light bulb that goes off? Is there a feeling we get? Is there uh, a magical quality to the thing that we've created? Like, what is it that exists out there that t- tells us? Ah, oh, yes, I just created something. I'm creative. Um, I think when because it feels good. That's uh, for yourself, and it doesn't matter whether other people think it's good or not. Who gives a who gives a beep about what yeah people think? Photography is for yourself. It's a very selfish uh, hobby, but it's also a very healthy hobby um, because you you have to s- express yourself. And I'm talking about people that already master the technical and the composition side of things. And you know, if they want to go further into that side, every person's different. Whether they're happy to get to that point and go, no, nah, that's fine. I'm happy with that. That's fine. And if and then and if they keep creating stuff and they're happy, they might see that as being creative. So, who am I to judge? Totally. Yeah, it was interesting. I think it was Guy Tell who was saying on one of our episodes together that there's like big C creative and there's little C creative. And I think the way that he kind of differentiated the two and I'm totally going to butcher this and guy's going to write me a hate mail. But if I remember correctly, like little C is kind of like, you know, yeah, you've created something, but if two photographers were standing in the same place at the same time, they would, they, they probably would create something very similar. And then there's big C, which is like disruptive and um, kind of game changing, kind of like, like the iPhone or, you know, some other invention or some other creation where it's, where it's, uh, it's completely new and different and fresh that hasn't been seen and done before. What are your thoughts on achieving that level of creativity in, in this space? Like, how do we do that? Man, there's so much verbal diarrhea going around and, and a lot of, um, uh, you know, we're just bombarded with, with imagery and information. And so you got to, you know, siphon through the noise and find what you're attracted to. Now, it, and again, it goes back to the individual. And again, it, it, it goes to that individual and whether they're, they're very uh, visually, uh, I'm a visual junkie, right? And so are you. So we, we, we've seen, uh, if you compare the number of photos you've seen and studied compared to the average person, it's probably tenfold more. Right? Sure. So you're, you, I guess you would be seen as being more visually literate, you know, or when you look at like photo editors uh, for publications, they, they've seen it all. So they, they, they can, they can differentiate between what is uh, mundane, special, uh, if it's for publication, but if it's for the individual, 
who cares if they like it because they saw it and they and it's good for them and it gives them joy i'm not gonna i'm not a killjoy right i'm never gonna say anything against that it's like that that's great i'm really that's really good and if they want my opinion a personal opinion about what i think uh happy to give it but most of the time they don't care <laughs> they don't want to you know everyone's got their own their own way of looking at things and uh and i have to respect that um when i'm teaching i never push what i what i my opinion about how i want them to see things what i'm trying to teach is them is to help them enhance how they see or recognize so if i see something they photograph i go wow that's really different you know so i have a bunch of like landscape photographer friends and we exchange our images with each other before we publish them and i'll go man you know that i haven't seen you done that you haven't done that before that's that's different you know they've been shooting for 10 20 years and they go really i didn't know that you know well thanks you know yeah uh, so it's really again it's down to the individual it's a very personal um you know uh photography is just a medium you know it's just a uh, medium of self-expression it's it's and the camera is just your tool um but uh the process to to find self-expression again i keep saying that word is paramount yeah i, I think i really like i like how you said that and i think it kind of removes kind of this veneer that somehow you have to be some kind of special person to be creative, which I don't personally believe. I think creativity is within all of us uh, to, to some degree or another. And and I think if you're to tell people like, well, if, if you're getting joy out of it and you're enjoying yourself and you're uh, like what you find uh, and you're, that feels creative to you, then not, you know, like go for it. I think that's, that's very liberating, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When, when, when I do camera club judging, um, I never, I think I heard Len Metcalf, who's a lovely man. Um, he, you know, he said it too, but I never say anything discouraging, always encouraging. Um, and when you're, when you're giving uh, suggestions for improvement, I'm always using myself as an example. You know, this is what, this is, uh, you know, I would, you know, I would, uh, this is uh, the mistake I've done. And I feel that maybe if you did this or this, uh, and then I'd ask them, what do you think? You know, if right. I can, but, um, you, right. Yeah. What have you, what would you have you done differently if you could go back or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's good. Well, that's like Socrates. <laughs> yeah. Two way conversation, right? Yeah. A little Socratic method there. I like it. Yeah. Cool. Well, you know, you're, you talked a little bit about working with your clients in the field. I'm curious, what ways have you used uh, in order to maximize uh, your creativity in the field, not just for your clients, but for yourself? So um, in case you didn't notice, I focus on the countries, cultures, and languages that I know. And I'm, I'm a specialist for Australia, Philippines, Japan, and Spain. Yeah, I've thrown in Faroe Islands, but that, that's, that's just a little, a little side thing, right? <laughs> but, uh, and I don't know Faroese. However, there are a lot of Filipino housewives there, which I can talk to Gallup to if I need to. Um, they're the biggest minority group, apparently. Anyway, but the 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 four things that the, the four countries are so much in line with who I am and where I live and what I want to learn. I want to learn more about the lang other languages I speak, the other I learn about the culture. Yeah. Have you found that your connection and interest in those cultures? Um, has influenced your photography, and if so, in what ways? Uh, yes, 
for example, um, I was supposed to go to Uluru with some customers next month, but we can't because we're in lockdown. So I pushed it the next year. And uh, at Uluru, you know, the, the big rock, right? That uh, the Anangu culture there uh, is so alive and well and very well protected as well. And in order to guide my customers through there, you can hire a local guide if you want, but you also have a choice to go to university and do uh, like a permit certificate which it takes about four to six months to get that certificate. So uh, I'm studying for that now so I can have that permit. And I'll still hire some local guides to do certain tours, cultural tours. But that's an example of how much I'm invested in in learning about um, culture to help my customers enhance their experience. Mm-hmm. How has um, your study of those languages and cultures influenced your personal photography and, and the output that you have in terms of your work? Um, so they're, they're a part of me, you know, uh, aside from the Aboriginal uh, culture, uh, Spain, Philippines, and Japan, and the languages I speak there, they, they, are, they are a part of me. I mean, Japan is my second home. I used to live there a long time. My wife's Japanese. I have a lot of friends and family there, just like the Philippines and Spain. So every, so the more I learn about that place, the more interested I am to document or self-express myself through photography when I go there with my customers. So it's, yeah, it's a win-win. So, Are you able to give a specific example of a photograph maybe that you've taken where that influence of culture has kind of enabled you in order to create something that you're very proud of? Uh, like the story I said earlier about the environmental refugees. Oh, right, the project. Yeah, that ter- that turned out to be a, a series of photos for a project. Um, so that was street portraiture. Let's say I go to a location uh, and I might try to interact with local people because it's not just landscape photography. I also like taking portraits of people. One example might be uh, I was up in... Um, uh, town up in Tohoku in Japan. They were at an igloo festival there. Uh, They build their own igloos. I met the local students. They invited me to their high school. I met the teacher, ended up going in there with my customers, teaching English and taking portraits of them. So it was like an exchange, uh, a cultural exchange, you know, whilst doing that. Um, So yeah, it has to be an exchange. So I I always try, if I'm doing photography, like I I team up with a a guide up in the mountains in the Philippines, and he's a a super full-on environmental advocate there. And he, uh, so I always team up with him, and then we always try to do things where we can give back to the community. Uh, I do a street, uh, sorry, a slum tour in Manila, where I team up with a local uh, public school, we, my customers donate money to the school. Then the teacher of the school walks us around the neighborhood and we kind of inadvertently meet the parents while we're taking photos of them. And then we get, you know, we get the photos. But more importantly, we're giving cash donation to the school to help the school. And my customers are getting to experience a walk through a slum, which is, you know, people think it's dangerous. But if you're with the right people, it's safe. I was going to say, I feel like that word has some negative connotation. Slum tour. Well, I mean, the word slum, I feel like is. It is a slum. It's, 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 uh, it's the slum that I lived in a gated community in Manila, you know, with, with servants and 
and there is a wall and with the broken glass and the slum was on the other side of that wall. I hate to say it. It's horrible. It's horrible. Uh, and that division of classes and, and, and the inequality of the rich and the poor, it's, it's horrible. So we talk about it. We expose them to that. But if we can at least give a little bit of something, not just exploit the people. If someone, let's say you take a photo of someone on the street and they ask me for money uh, and if I want to take their photo, um, I might give them maybe, uh, I, it's an exchange. I'm exploiting them too, right? To be honest, sure. yeah. they're exploiting me. I'm exploiting them. So we, we have an exchange. I might give them a little bit of money or I might buy them something to eat or give. I might have a, 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 a knapsack full of pencils or paper or textbooks or whatever to give in exchange for that exchange. They're like, yeah, it's a, comp it's a complex problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I think that whole, that whole topic of travel and photo tourism and kind of the ethical, I don't know, conundrums that we face as photographers in those places. I mean, on one hand, tourism is, is providing them with some form of income that they otherwise wouldn't have. And then on the other hand, like you said, it's it's um, a very transparently exploitative, exploitative, <laughs> whatever that word is, uh, a transaction that occurs. Um, but I think being honest and open about the fact that, that that is what is happening, I think is is probably the first good step. Yeah, and you got to work with local communities um, to liaise with them, like I did with the teachers in the the primary school, so that you're walking around with them. You know, you can't, you know, if if you're not in that environment and it happens, um, then then yeah, you you have to also make some kind of quick exchange, like I just mentioned. But most of the time, I, I try and prefer, if possible, to work um, with uh, local communities to help them. Gotcha. Uh, be curious to hear about. Um, who you would be excited to um, have us uh, learn more about here on the podcast, either as a guest or someone that our listeners should perhaps go check out their work or, or things of that nature. Three photographers I mentioned to you. Um, they're uh, Jason Bolin, Hollywood uh, Marvel stills photographer based out of Gold Coast, the Gold Coast. Nikon Shooter, Ambassador shot the matrix and many other beautiful things and then oh, we get cool. <laughs> yeah jason edwards in melbourne he's a nat geo presenter nature and wildlife uh he'll chew your ear off with lots of beautiful information very enthusiastic guy and uh delhi Carr, uh who's uh just finished shooting the olympics and about to start the paralympics in tokyo based out of sydney uh, yeah so sports awesome. Movies and nature and wildlife. That's a great mix up there. I like it. Yeah. And, and good luck trying to get them all together. You're going to have a real party. Right. Yeah, we, all, no we all know each other. Awesome. Well, Alfonso, uh, what do you have coming up that you'd like our listeners to, to learn a little bit more about? Um, I'm excited about, um, I think I talked to you earlier about this project that I've got happening um, to do with... Um, helping people with uh th through photography for mental health yeah so teamed up with uh, a local council a government council and they've teamed up with all of the local uh community groups to do with mental health and they're going to have an exhibition in november and they need to submit two photos and it's just a smartphone course 
but um, having the, uh, I'm not a therapist, obviously, but having all of those uh, people there to oversee uh, this project, I have to teach them. So there's about 100 of them we got to teach. Um, to be able, and the question for the exhibition that they need to answer through the imagery is um, how how has how how do they see the pandemic or how has the pandemic affected them? So they have to answer that through two images. What is the uh, what is the overall goal of the exhibition? The overall goal for so the the, the client is the, the council, the government council that's working with the local community groups. The goal is to help them with um, kind of art therapy in a way. Um, so, uh, and this is just, yeah. And there's a lot of, you, you work in that field, uh, you know, so you understand the complexity, the risks, the regulation. There's a lot of behind the scenes happening uh, as we speak to put that together. So that that's what I'm excited about because I can, I feel I can help uh, these people. And there are going to be 50 youth, so 12 to 18-year-olds, and it's going to be 50 senior citizens, separated, of course, with uh, teaching sessions separately. Unfortunately, we got to do it through Zoom. I'd rather do it face-to-face, but because we're in lockdown, and it's gonna, it's probably going to happen from next week. So fingers crossed it'll all go ahead as planned. Um, so yeah, and if you're also if your customers are interested, I do Zoom calls. Uh, I can teach individually or groups or, or camera clubs if they want to um, have a chat about anything. Uh, that's all listed on alfonso.com.au. Well, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well. Um, going back to that that uh, that project, yeah. What what are you excited to get out of that as someone who's kind of helping lead it? I want to help them if I can help them find a better place that that that's a win-win yeah yeah uh, they're they're already kind of uh earmarked as being vulnerable and uh there's people helping them already but if if this can help them you know this whole art therapy thing is still uh early days for the most of the world right i've heard some of your past speakers talk about it but a lot of people don't want to talk about it it's like right. you know it's a bit of a taboo subject but i think the way in which i'm doing it is safe because there's experts there to to you know watch and and oversee and they you know they they I don't understand all the triggers that can can happen so I, I don't and I don't I'm not responsible for that but I want to make sure that everything goes in a really positive and also they they need to get together as well because there's ten in each group and it's it's good for them to exchange with each other that's also another thing they're hoping to get out of it so that they can you know they're not alone. That's the main thing. They're not alone. We're in this together. We have an invested interest in their mental health, and photography is the the uh, one of the pathways to get there. Why is it that you think uh, this form of therapy hasn't been more widely accepted yet? People um, uh, hesitate to open up. You know, they, and and that's why it's always um, important for me to understand the individual. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. and so. And, I, and self-expression, again, through photography, is a great way to do that. Beautiful. Well, Alfonso, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you. I hope you uh, got something out of it and your listeners got something out of it and they don't hesitate to reach out in order to find me. Um, I'm in lockdown, so I can chat for the next month and a half. <laughs> right, right, like, pl- please, please chat with me. <laughs> 
please, I'm alone. No, I'm not. I, I'm very happy and to to and grateful. Well, thank you to Alfonso for the great conversation on today's podcast. Alfonso is incredibly generous with his ideas on how to help you grow as a photographer, so don't hesitate to reach out to him. All right, well, we are working on a t-shirt design for the podcast for our Patreon supporters. If you have any great ideas, and I know lots of you are amazing graphic designers, please send them my way. Of course, if you can't support the show by doing that or helping us out over on Patreon, there's also other ways to help out. Uh, the, the easiest way to help out is leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Those really do help spread the word to help other people find the show. You can also start engaging with other people in conversations about the podcast on your favorite social media channel. You can join us for our weekly Clubhouse after parties where we discuss the episode. And, you know, if you have other ideas on how to help out, please do reach out. Thank you to this incredible community for your support. I love you. All right, well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.